Hello and welcome to The Thought Leader's Voice. I'm Rachel Kinsella, Editor-in-Chief at iResearch Services and your host for today's episode, Investing in Smarter Solutions for the Healthcare Industry. We're incredibly excited to welcome as our guest today, Clinical Consultant for Alcidian, an expert representative for IT and digital development at the Royal College of Nursing, Douglas Hamandiche. Douglas has spent over 15 years as a clinician who has worked tirelessly to introduce and bring innovative technologies to the hands of healthcare professionals. He has a real passion for patient empowerment, and these innovations support patient empowerment and user experience, while also improving healthcare outcomes. Douglas has implemented large-scale IT transformation projects in health and social care for the NHS, as well as for private software companies. Douglas also has a strong background in broadcasting, communicating and engineering. His own podcast series, Centric Health Media, it's a clinically led interactive media platform, bringing incisive insights and sharing best practices in digital healthcare to a health and social care audience. We're thrilled to have you here today, Douglas. Thank you for joining us in what is certainly a challenging time for the healthcare industry and for patients alike. Thank you very much. I'm very honoured to be here and, and humbled as well. So I look forward to an, an engaging, dynamic conversation. So yeah, it is a very challenging time um, for, for the NHS. It seems as if we haven't yet caught our breath from COVID and um, staff are still dealing with their own personal issues regarding the effects of COVID on themselves and their families, as well as the um, rejigging of working roles. A lot of workflows had to change because of the pandemic and Again, we've not caught our breath into really take a look at the whole panacea and say, is this working? What can we do differently? What's, what's not working, et cetera. So it's a unique time to be within the NHS at the moment. Plus, we've got the bed pressures because of the backlog caused by the pandemic as well. And projects had to be put on hold. So we've got the backlog we're trying to contend with. Typical winter pressures that we still not resolved, as well as the rapid change of transformation and a changing workforce. So there's a lot of, it's all the ingredients make the perfect storm, I would say. Absolutely. It's just coming at all, all sides. And of course, with the, the rise of COVID um, in current times, that just adds extra pressure to all areas of the, of the NHS. And uh, whilst dealing with this, this backlog and uh, having to shift working models, work, workflows, adopt new technologies very quickly, uh, as you say, very little time to, to even draw breath. Can you talk around some of those sort of, you know, you've talked us through some of the key challenges. Can you talk us through the way the, the landscape has, has changed? We've, we've seen that evolving through, through COVID and it's still evolving in response to multiple challenges today. Oh, yeah, yeah most definitely. You can take a look at it from an operational side and we start to drill down. From operation operational side, you're seeing organisations having to pivot, having to rely a lot more on data coming from outside of health services. Right. We've seen integrated care systems being rolled out, how that will fit in to a certain geographic location. So those teams, those services are still yet to find their feet. There's a big difference between social care budgets traditionally and healthcare budgets. Technology being adopted across health, social care, education, and other factors, other, other specialities, all come to bear to bring about better health outcomes. So Trying to coordinate that approach is very, very difficult. And I must also include at the same time, say, social prescribing groups as well, voluntary groups, who are instrumental and pivotal in getting this nation on its feet 
during the COVID pandemic. They were so instrumental, but how can we then harness that, that data post-COVID? So from operational side, you've got these, these pressures and also this, like I said, the staffing issue is one that needs to be discussed further because a lot of people don't realise this, but the vast majority of NHS workers are not directly employed by the NHS. They're employed by agency workers, agency staff. Agency, yeah, agencies, yeah. They, 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 they recruit a vast bulk of staff. So they need to be communicated to and work in partnership with the NHS to ensure staffing levels are kept to optimum. And yes. so there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a divide in terms of the a gap that needs to be closed in terms of the, the skills as well as the pay, the remuneration that a staff member will have, say, working for agency opposed to working directly for trust. So as where the staff go, they'll leave deficits behind on the ward because they're sometimes making decisions based upon what's the, the most economically viable place for them to work in opposed to where they would like to work. So staff are not only in a difficult situation, operationally, senior managers are struggling to make sure and retain staff so that they can um, fulfill their um, obligation. So yeah, there's a lot of moving pieces in there that needs to be um, resolved from the operational side. And if you distill that down to from the clinical perspective, it is so much change coming to board to come to bear on you straight away that it can seem difficult for you to find the value. Technology has never moved at such a rapid pace. Moore's law. You know, the, the rate of technologically advancements is doubling in the consumer grade electronics, but then in in health, it seems to be gone exponential. It seems to have gone so far forward. Staff nurses, for example, have three or four logins still, three or four different systems that they need to navigate, all with changing workflows. And understanding how your colleagues will need to use that information is also complicated because the days are long gone where a patient is admitted to your ward and you retain the physical notes. So yes. you could write in your very specific way because it was only meant for your, your team, your ward, to understand how you write, how, you know. But now when you've got the, that data now has to permeate over to other services that might not be health that puts a lot of pressure on the person scribing the notation to make it understandable across different services. So that's just a, a, a telling example mm. of what to be resolved and also the pressures that we feel on a clinical perspective. And lastly, I want to really touch upon the expert health consumer. COVID has been a unique experience for many in the sense that for those who, who never had direct experience with the NHS, mm-hmm. now have direct experience with NHS in bulk, either directly or indirectly through loved ones. Yes. So their expectations for, for the health service has also gone exponential. They expect to engage with the NHS in the same way they're engaging with um, retail, grocery services, online, all of those things, expecting the same level of customer services. And the NHS is struggling to meet them on that term, as, as well as the fact that they're holding on to data on their persons, like patient-recorded data, say on your Fitbit, say on your iWatch, all these types of data, and yes. helping that to feed into your health record. So 
across the board from top to bottom they're, they're large large issues there just seems to be so much i think there's so many tech challenges and time challenges and different workloads both operational and physical in terms of patient care are, are you seeing tech innovations trying to help ease ease that burden for example getting different systems talking to each other or integrated you mentioned the example of the nurses with the with the three logins which you know they don't have the time or the uh, the resources to be able to cope with this sort of setup so um, are you seeing some innovations come in to try and integrate these systems more and and be able to to share the data Yes, I am. As as in my both my roles, really, I'm at the cutting edge of technology. So I spend a lot of time with startups and established tech companies in the health space. So I know there's a lot of innovation coming. Um, the biggest issue that we have is the infrastructure that that data needs to sit on. Yes. For example, we know the railways, the roads are the, the bedrocks of transport within the country. The bedrocks of, of data flowing between systems is based upon interoperability, mm-hmm. agreeing the standards for data to move freely across different systems. That's been a conversational piece for the last 10 years at least. And we've still not cracked it. We've still got locking from various providers, locking in data. We've still got inconsistencies in, in the quality of data. Because mm-hmm. there's one thing about letting two systems communicate, but you've got to understand that data is only as good as the data that's been recorded. So what's the point of sharing data that is that is bad. It's not going to advance anything. It's actually going to create more patient safety concerns. So leveling up in terms of making sure the data is at an agreeable high level of quality across the whole piece, then it's about making it accessible and move as quickly as possible. So I think on a technological level, the technology is, is available for us to do that. It's more to do with a humanistic blocker that comes in the disguise of companies, um, processes, um, procedures that need to be really ratified to really create an environment where that is now a reality, the norm. It should be the fundamental foundation of health. But I think it just needs to, it needs to be um, championed a lot more. Yes. Yeah. And uh, it seems like there needs to be a fundamental shake-up or change of, of these processes, these ways of, of working as the foundations for uh, being able to to use technology effectively to get access to the right data to provide the best level of patient care. And, you know, there are multiple challenges that, that come with that, as you say, legacy systems, the quality of the data that's been captured previously. Uh, there's the, you know, the, the willingness for patients for their data to be to be shared. And it's something that has been a challenge for the industry for some time. And as you say, we're still trying to to tackle it. I like the way the way you point out that really strong human element to it that you know people need to be involved in reinvigorating these processes in changing the way that we work so that we can get the technology to work in the right way that's going to improve uh, patient care and patient empowerment and better patient outcomes but also for operationally for all of the healthcare workers to make their lives easier when they're they're facing so many different different challenges so there's a lot of focus on technology and what we can do with it and, and how we can we can get it working together. There's that human element that perhaps people don't touch on so much or but you know perhaps don't recognize that is crucial to get anything working operationally and to move forward with digital transformation. 
I think certainly during the pandemic, we've seen a lot of opportunity for uh, for patients to to empower themselves with access to different services through e-health solutions. Through you mentioned wearables earlier, having your your iWatch or your um, your Fitbit or your your Whoop or uh, whatever de- device you're using to kind of keep an eye on your vitals, but um, also being able to access video. Uh, appointments with with healthcare practitioners, which has been vital, you know, particularly for people who are in the extremely vulnerable category who shielding throughout the pandemic and, and couldn't actually attend medical appointments to be able to s- still have access to, to the care that they need for, for ongoing conditions and conditions other than COVID. Are you seeing some some interesting innovations? Uh, are you seeing sort of increased uptake? How are you seeing those kind of levels change? Um, now we're at a different stage of the, the pandemic. I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts from both a healthcare provider perspective and, and from a patient perspective from what you're seeing here. Well, that's a great point. And just to um, round up the last point about interoperability before I tackle this one. Interoperability being the bedrock, it needs to be a prerequisite, which many say it is a prerequisite. However, for many trusts and many suppliers, it's a like to have, not a must have. And where it's been a must-have, there's no enforceability of it. So if you have a prerequisite for interoperability and your systems must connect and engage with one another, and it's not enforceable by by statutes, you end up having a must-have or we'll be able to do that in two, three years' time, et cetera, et cetera. And and it gets pushed further and further into into the long grass. So that's what we need. We need to make that enforceable so that it then can be a real thing. Because I think everything that we're going to talk about hangs on the strength of that. Of course, yes. Do you think there's have to be a, a shift to the regulatory agenda as well, and that policymakers have a part to play in making this enforceable? Absolutely. If you if you lobby your MP, or if you watch Parliament on Question Time, or any of these discussions that take place at the highest level of government, how often do we hear interoperability spoken? It's rare, and so when yes. it's not spoken about by our MPs. And it's not, and the understanding of it is very green with the general public. It's no yes. wonder it's not a big thing. You see, we need to really raise awareness how massive the issue it is. For me, it introduces a clinical risk, first and foremost, if data is not moving across systems. It just introduces blind spots. And we're becoming more and more health-centric as mm-hmm. beings in the sense that we are becoming determinants of health in many instances, have nothing to do with health anymore. I, as a nurse, I have, I have supported young people who have challenging situations at home. And they will tell me, mommy's depression will lift if you can fix the housing situation. If we can just get the housing situation sorted out, the depression will go. I won't get bullied. I won't get harassed. My grades will pick up, you know? But that mm-hmm. young person, I'm treating them for mental health disorders. You see, so, so so often the determinants of health come from other services. So if we have sight of these other services that interplay with somebody's um, wellness, yes. we can help in a far more positive way. You know, again, the foundation of that would be the interoperability of systems. As we're moving forward and we're seeing behaviours change, and, and I speak about this being for many parts, a humanistic problem, not the technology. Another example, we see habits of visual consultations playing a larger role. 
We've had the technology for video conferencing for over 15 years. It's been there. Yes. We shut down by human processes, i.e. information and governance. Yeah? yeah? It wasn't safe. What if somebody in your house walks past when you're having a consultation with your GP? How many people have been caught out now with the loved <laughs> one, the cat, the baby, all going past? Yeah? It's part of life. But it took a pandemic for us to, to, as humans to shift the whole narrative and quell this IG situation. So many times it's not going to be the technology that's going to be standing in the way. It's going to be how we reconcile humanistic behaviours or the ability to control or contain something. So to broaden it out, you find with the video consultations as probably the biggest thing that's come out of COVID in terms mm-hmm. of a change in workflow, a change in the way we deliver care. It gives a patient another option to engage the NHS. And options is always a good thing. Choice is always a good thing. And also this helps to stem the flow of traffic to the front line, to the front door of the hospital trust. You're saying to somebody, you can connect either through our telephone system, through visual consultations. You don't have to materialize in A&E. So that choice alone will take time for the public to fully understand it. And also it can raise expectations of the service because you give them choice. So we expect somebody to be at the end of the line. Expect the EP to be ready for us when we want a video consultation. We expect our prescriptions to be ready on time because when we do our shopping, it comes on time. We know roughly what time our Amazon delivery is going to arrive. But how many, how many patients are not discharged from wards because medication is not ready? Yes. All of these things are coming to bear. And also the digital divide is real. Yes, a lot of people can connect now using digital technologies, but also a lot of people cannot. And it's not not due to not wanting to, it's due to the economic situation, this enables them to do so. The government during the COVID gave up, lots of councils, lots of schools gave up computers to children that were deemed to be coming from economically deprived backgrounds, challenging situations. They gave them laptops. Do you know what they did in the, <laughs> in the vast ways during the summer after the academic term had finished? A lot of them took back those laptops. A lot of them took back those laptops. Some of those students went from being, I'm going to a secondary school, going to, going to study A-levels. They had to give back their computers. And I wanted to find myself in another situation, again, for A-levels. So this is a situation where the digital divide is so, so real. It's acutely real. It should be, there should be a standard of care that is given to every citizen, and that includes technology, the ability to connect and engage with your service. It needs to be out there because there's no question if you have an individual consultation, you're saving the trust a lot of money. Yes. On top of that, you are supporting the carbon net zero mandate that every trust has to adhere to by not traveling on a bus, you know, in a taxi. Do you know these things? So that saving should be able to increase the budget for trusts or government bodies to give devices out to people who are most vulnerable so they can engage and connect. Yes. It's interesting because it's in that situation as well, it's looking at the patient and and their needs in context. So you were saying the economic context 
around treating patients for depression and addressing needs within the family, looking at it in the context of the, the housing, their economic situations, the burden that their, their family has. And in the same way, it's looking at it in context, looking at it economically from the trust perspective, looking at the, the SDG goals and the net zero um, carbon objectives, and looking at uh, a lot of work that needs to be done in terms of sustainability within the, the healthcare service. But then it's also try, trying to provide that equality of uh, of care uh, and looking at ways to do that so is it an awareness issue is it budgeting issues sort of n- not being able to look at, at the bigger picture in context because it's it seems that something that seems quite simple when you explain it that uh, when when viewed in context actually it takes a lot of boxes for budget for for sustainability and also improving patient care so why are these things things not being a addressed is it time is it sort of you know budget allocation still being allocated to to areas that pre-pandemic or that aren't as as viable or do you think it's just not enough people are, are aware of it I think it touches everything you're saying really but uh, I'll just break down a point until patient data is owned and patients are responsible for their data and they take ownership of their data, mm-hmm. you're going to have this issue. Yes. We, we are quick to surrender our data to a health organization, and the health organization take that data and put it in systems, and the system provider might take ownership of that data. Yes, they might say, theoretically, it's still the patient data, but the patient doesn't have that data, doesn't make decisions about that data. If you look in a maternity ward, Mothers, um, expected mothers, have their paper records and they hold on to it themselves. You see the behaviour of expected mothers, how protected they are of their medical records. It debunks the whole myth that patients wouldn't know what to do with their own records. It's about being able to present it in a way that they will understand and be able to look after it effectively. So it's, it's getting, going back and going to the, the nucleus of this whole problem. You've got to decouple patient data from software. And until you decouple the two, you could have patient data locked into software held by a provider that has a commercial interest pertaining to the data. So we're talking about a revolution. Health services now need to be turned on and said, I was trained in a time to, to deliver care. As a nurse, my primary function is to was to treat. Somebody is sick. I treat. Sick, I treat. I've found over the years that doesn't work. My role now is morphing into more a signposter, a personal cheerleader. The person is then coached in a way that they take responsibility for their care because they want to get on with it themselves. Yes, you still have some patients who traditionally turn up and say, what are you going to do for me to get better? But more and more we're seeing a shift in role. And being able to have a, a service that is taught at pre-registration for doctors, nurses, social workers that support a recovery-based model, that supports a model of care that says you now are not in the business of just treating. You're in the, post, you're in the business now of enabling people to get on and liberate themselves from health services. That is a different type of care. It requires a different health system. It requires wellness system 
The NHS is still a treatment-focused system. That's why it doesn't really, hasn't really focused too much on other parameters pertaining to somebody's health and well-being. You break your leg, you put a cast on it, send you back home. But not realizing maybe that person's staircase in their house is actually dangerous. We'll fix you when you come back again. Sometimes we know prevention is better than a cure. And if we get in early, the intervention not only is less costly to the NHS, the chances of somebody getting better increase. Satisfaction also increases. So there's more benefits in, in having this type of integrated care system, which is being brought up by the ICSs. But a lot needs to take place before we can really target all the health inequalities, the, the divides that we see that is emerging. And that's one good thing about digital is you can see where your problem areas are from diversity, from ethnic groups, terms of religion, you know, where you live, all of these things. The data is as brutal as you can, as brutal as it can be. If then what then do you do with that data when it comes to you with the budget that you have? Is it enough to stop applying interventions locally in your community? For the greater part, I'll say no. That's why we still leverage the support from social prescribing groups that can help people that typically run for nothing. It's a huge shift in mindset as well, isn't it? So as you say, it's a massive change to, to systems and, and, and the way the services work. But it's, it's a huge shift in mindset for patients and for healthcare workers and for carers. And it feels like there needs to be a lot more education on, on that and a lot more awareness of, of how healthcare practitioners can empower patients to take control to take more control over their health and also sort of, you know, look at recovery plans, as you, as you mentioned, and look at preventative options and, and lifestyle options that, that, that are going to help avoid having to have as many treatment visits or, you know, as many different treatments or medications or whatever the case may be. So it feels like there needs to be a, a lot more education on both the patient side and the, and the healthcare industry side. And, as you say, how it all pins around having the, the right data and being able to do the right things with it. Again, there needs to be awareness and, and education on, on that on, on both sides as well. Do you feel that, and you mentioned the social prescribing uh, initiatives, which have been fantastic throughout the, the pandemic, and I feel are a real case study of success for so, you know being able to offer op- other options as you mentioned to to patients particularly for people who who are in the vulnerable category and unable to leave the house at, at at one point and being able to to offer access someone to join up the dots between different services or or to put patients in in touch with with other options and other services that are available i think is incredibly valuable um, and again there's not much awareness about those initiatives and what they're doing uh, and as you say they're for the most part they're they're running for free by uh, by volunteers but it's it's an example of something that's worked very well in partnership with gp practices for uh, for example so where, where do you think the future lies with these kind of services with it, these kind of new models so what practical steps can we discuss from from a healthcare industry perspective and from a patient perspective to to try and make this transition a bit easier sure i think we need to help the transition i think you're right education we need to re-educate first and foremost the educators 
There's no point in training, um, delivering training to pre-raged health professionals by health professionals that have a training set that's obsolete. There's no technology is so fast now. Stuff that you study in your first year becomes obsolete by the time you qualify. So you want to have an up-to-date refresh mandate. There's no use in having a training program that you refresh every six years. Because what we find is a lot of clinicians turn up on the ward and they, they can't believe how what they were trained is not what we actually do. For example, very quickly, when I was training as a, as a nurse, um, I was never trained in, in an administration, in filing documents, not trained in it. When I presented myself on the ward, I had to learn on the go. Hence, medical records go missing because people are not trained to, to understand the administrative part of record keeping, although it's useful. And nurses have been saying that 50% of their time at least is spent on administration, but we're not trained on administration. You see, so we need to make sure, sure systems are designed in such a way that it's designed so that it's logical, it uses, it understands the workflow. So we need a lot more clinicians get involved in informatics. That's what we need. Doctors, nurses, social workers, we need to have that collaborative spirit all, all come together to share the information. Also, we need to have strategic people who understand how systems work, the interplay between systems. Well, for example, if you are creating a service that means patients no longer need to go to A&E, but they're shipped, to, but they stay in the community, for example, who's going to see them in the community? You create, moving a problem somewhere else in the system that might not have the resources to deal with the influx of patients. You'll stop them going one place, they're going somewhere else. So it's being able to understand how, not just your own environment, your own ward, your own hospital, but understand how community teams operate voluntary services operate, and also increase the budget for these social prescribing groups so they can digitize. A lot of groups, like for example, I support a group that helps women going through domestic violence. All of those conversations that we have, they're on paper. So at best, it's scanned and uploaded back into medical records. But it doesn't do anything because nobody has time to look at scanned and uploaded documents. Right. Those voluntary groups need to have the technology so that they can digitize their processes. Um, so, yes, yeah, it is a massive undertaking. I think we need to create more, more roles within trusts, more roles within government to take a look at this stuff and stop, keep changing the, the, the mandates between NHSX, say NHS Digital, and whatever these organizations are doing. The number one priority, I, I believe, should be cracking interoperability, but nothing moves until that's done. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I, that's one of the questions I was going to ask you. So you've already answered it for me, but is there scope for, for more roles to be able to support this transition and to support these new, new ways of, of working? And, uh, and it's interesting that, that, that you point out that there need to be more roles uh, from a government perspective there as well, and, um, and indeed from a policy perspective. Do you think leadership has a, an important role to play in, in this, both with the kind of bringing about the shift in, in mindset, but also um, changing the way that, that we use systems and in being able to bring interoperability in? Absolutely. Leadership is key. This is why if your MPs cannot pronounce interoperability and never use the word interoperability, they cannot lead on interoperability. 
So we need to have leadership across the whole health and social care panacea. We do. And then the question is, what constitutes a good leader within this field? Traditionally, leadership has been, um, within health, has been very much top down. You do, as I, as I tell you, this very matri matriarchal, matron-driven type delivery of leadership. That is not the leadership we need in the NHS. We need transformational leadership, which is a completely different ballgame. Because when we transform services, we transform human beings. And if you cannot motivate, you cannot inspire, you cannot encourage, you cannot give hope, and you cannot actually be the embodiment of change yourself, you cannot lead successfully. You can force people, but the health service is, 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 is an environment that's unique. We vote for our feet. If we don't like you, we don't do what you have to say. As long as we remain accountable to our governing bodies, we don't have to do everything that you say. And at least, and at least we can go slow. So we need to get buy-in for somebody, from people that can do those things, can inspire. And I don't see too much of that style of leadership. I see too many change agents coming in to fix a problem. And so the whole humanistic experience is negated. You know, on a humanistic level, what do we go through when you go through change? You go through a loss of, you know, um, we go through a de-skilling exercise, we go through fear. These are conversations we hear leaders talk about all the time. I don't hear it. I hear we need to transform our services. We need to do this. But the, per the people that have to deliver that transformation, they're left out only because the leaders don't understand transformational leadership from a humanistic perspective. So it comes back down to the to that human perspective uh, uh, again, and so being able to see see the the human effects of of change of, of transformation, and uh, and being able to see the bigger picture and and look at it on a strategic level, which is even more about the people than it is about about the technology in this situation and and indeed many other situations, uh, you know, requiring a transformational change and. Um, just very interesting to see it from that perspective because externally you, you don't see that and um, as you say you don't hear about interoperability unless you're talking to the tech providers or people who are kind of deeply entrenched in various different processes and uh, and systems you, you don't hear about it from outside of the healthcare service or or even outside of the med tech space again that's the awareness recognizing the human impacts of tech advancement and the pace of change that we're seeing and the volume of challenges that we were discussing at the at the start of our conversation. And you can't just solve a problem at a time and, and tackle it piecemeal. It has to be looked at strategically and from the bigger, bigger picture. And I think all the elements that we've discussed today really tie into that. And it's very clear that significant uh, change in in mindset and in approach and processes and and workflows needs to happen that does need to come from a different type of leadership and a different setup which obviously the industry is in the process of building but it, there's a, these various different blocks that need to be in place to, to build that that foundation as we discussed earlier so in a way, there's, there's an awful lot of challenge, but to, to look at it from, from a more positive note, there is a real opportunity for positive change in, in a number of very important areas, ultimately to, you know, to help improve the lives of healthcare professionals and patients. But there's so many different elements to tackle from the challenge perspective. I think technology seems to be 
making a difference in in some areas and with the right infrastructure in in place on a human level and a tech level as you've discussed that's how we're going to get things moving in the in the right direction are there any other more positive developments that you would like to talk to us about where we can kind of look to balance the many challenges and uh, and issues that we face i think the, the positive thing that we can do is have these conversations so i really welcome the opportunity to be on this on this show talking about these issues because it's rare for me to observe a platform that shares these types of conversations, let alone be on one. So um, the change is going to come when we, as a collective, take the responsibility to start to shape the health service in a better way. If we leave it, for example, if we let the market decide, it's going to continue doing what it's been doing for the last 10 years. We have to intervene. There has to be an intervention. There just has to be an intervention. Either we have to be strategic and make sure that we vote where we've got the power to vote for the right people who can drive the health service forward in the right direction. Then they'll create the environment for all of us to then add value into it. And we want leaders to be courageous. So I think I'm, I'm very positive. The technology-wise, I'm very positive. With the clinicians that I speak to on a daily basis, I'm very positive. There's a lot of energy. There's there's still a lot of enthusiasm. And with every cohort that's qualified, the expectations also increased. But I will say that the patient needs to be upskilled in understanding how they too can leverage their own data to improve their own lives, as well as to um, enable the NHS to continue to innovate. Because there's no question as we're moving forward, technology is so fast, your car is going to be your ambulance, your home is going to be your hospital, and your watch is going to take all your vital signs for you. So at what point is a hospital going to be involved? You know, So we've got to be preparing ourselves for that sort of environment in order for us to prosper. And I think there's going to be lots of conversations still to be had that I remain positive. Thank you very much. Thank you. I think that's very important, sort of looking to to the future, um, looking at it with with energy and positivity and and enthusiasm from all the different participants in, involved. And I think, uh, as you say, sort of you know, thought leadership in itself is an enabler for for this change to happen, to raise awareness, to to educate on the on the issues and the challenges that the industry and patients are facing. But also talking with people like yourselves who are demystifying so many different areas of the industry and bringing that 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 human perspective to light, which is just so, so important. And uh, I think it's very exciting to have you here talking to us today, sharing your insights, but also helping to spread awareness and, and demystify some of these areas. So thank you so much for joining us today. We hope to, to speak with you again and see how things continue to develop. And we'll keep tuning in to, to Centric and find out what, what else you're talking about and, and who else you're speaking with. Thank you very much. It was an honour and a pleasure to speak with you, Rachel. Thank you very much. Likewise. Thank you very much. Thank you.